welcome to Can I Butt In, the Bowel Research UK podcast, where we welcome bowel cancer and bowel disease patients, researchers, healthcare professionals and carers to butt in and share their experiences. We're picking a topic every episode and getting to the bottom of it. I'm your host, Sam Alexandra-Rose. I'm the Patient and Public Involvement Manager at Bowel Research UK. And as a patient myself, I'm excited to bring more patient and researcher voices into the spotlight. Hi everybody, today we're talking about fit tests, an easy and convenient bowel screening method potentially, but much more difficult for those who are visually impaired. I'm joined by Eamon Dunn from Thomas Pocklington Trust, which is a charity that supports blind and partially sighted people. Hi Eamon, welcome to the podcast. Hi Sam, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming. So do you want to start by just sort of introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your role at Thomas Pocklington Trust? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, my name's Eamon Dunn and I work for the, the charity Thomas Parkinson Trust and I have done for the last six years now. So I'm quite a veteran, really, for our organisation. Um, so as Sam says, we work to support in very many different ways um, blind and partially sighted people. Um, and my specific role in it as partnerships and projects development manager is to look at health equity. So it's really good to be here today to talk to you about about the the fit test and um, bowel research because this is one area that we've identified where there is a health inequity uh, and that's around the home fit testing kit. Do you want me to give a bit more detail about that Sam? Yeah so should we start by explaining to people what a a fit test is? So it stands for faecal immunochemical test which is quite hard to say. I've got that written down in front of me thank you. You Thank you for saying So this looks for blood in the poo, doesn't it? That right. people w- might you might not be able to to see with the the human eye. That's right. And as part of the government's health screening program and and uh, ill health prevention strategy, the the fit tests are sent to people um, who are registered with the GP. Uh, it used to be when they reach the age of sixty, but they're gradually getting to grips with doing it from people from the age of fifty. So you might not get one straight away when you're 50, you might be 54, but they're trying to kind of get, obviously with the capacity to get down to the age of, of everyone who reaches 50 will get this, this test. They'll get a letter first to introduce the fact that this test kit is coming out just to prepare people for it and why, why they're doing it. Um, there are various campaigns through different NHS organisations and perhaps your local GP will have some posters on the wall about it, uh, or you might find out through other, other family members or whatever that, that this is a thing. Um, and you'll get the letter, then you'll get about a week later, you'll get the test kit in a nice discreet envelope. And um, it's not the most pleasant thing to have to do, but the importance of doing it cannot be overstated because picking up anything um, in terms of cancer early as possible is key to better outcomes. So I would, you know, encourage everybody to, 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 to respond to this as, as as quickly as you can really because you only get follow-up letters anyway so you might as well do it sooner than later so the, the kit itself is basically gathering a sample of your poo which is not pleasant and easy to do but um, if you can forget the difficulties with it and the pleasantness for a while think about the benefits of doing it you know it's not that hard to do and we're very lucky in this country that our health service is free at the point of delivery so there's no charge for it there's even a free post little cardboard envelope to send it back in um, so what you will do you will take a sample of your poo, which can be done in different ways. You can, you know, without going into too much detail now, um, you can collect it in the toilet on tissue paper. 
and you take the, I've got one in front of me actually, but so I can actually do the actions. So you take a sample of your poo, a small sample on a stick, which effectively goes then into, into a, like a test tube type affair, but it's kind of flat um, overlooking thing, which clicks closed and then gets sent back. And it's as simple as that. You just write your name on the um, sticker on it and send it back in the prepaid envelope. Job done. And then within a week or so, you'll get a letter back telling you either you're clear, there's no, no problems to worry about, or if there's any follow-up needed, that will be arranged as well. So it's very quick and efficient. And I've done this myself. Uh, yes, I'm over 50. Um, and so I can, I can testify to um, how easy it is. That's relying on the fact that I am not visually impaired. Were I visually impaired or and or had dexterity issues, it would not be as easy as that because you, you need to be able to see to do this test. If you've got low vision, there's probably ways around it using the current kit. But because of the, the uh, effectively could described as a health in, inequity uh, for visually impaired people, based on some um, a lot of discussions with, with people with lived experience, that the rate of return of the kits amongst blind and partially sighted people, we think, and again, we've not done any detailed research on response rates because the data is not, not really available currently, but we think the rate of return from blind and partially sighted people for the FIT test is, rel is relatively low. So, you know, that means that you're more likely than if you're visually impaired, if that's the case, to go on and develop symptoms, which we obviously don't want people to do. And again, the problem with symptoms is you might not be able to spot the, the blood in your stool. So it's really important to do the screening when you get the opportunity. So because of that, we have worked with our partners in RNIB, the Royal National Institute for the Blind, who many, many listeners will know of already, and the NHS to work on something called Fit Aid. And this is a kit that is very similar to the existing Fit kit, but it comes with a few modifications that allow people with reduced vision and or dexterity problems to, to carry out the test more easily. And I have a prototype in front of me, so although you can't see it, you know, I can describe it in detail. It, it's, it's different from the current kit in that it has a flat tray where you can easily click on the, the stick into the test tube. So it's more easy to kind of um, to do it cleanly without messing it up. There's also, it also comes with a, what's called a QR code, which provides a link to a website or and or um, video and audio content as well. So the idea is even if you can't see, you can get verbal instructions on how to carry out the test and return it. And we think, you know, we've, we're just about actually um, sound to start testing which I can talk about in a minute if you like well that's that all sounds really positive and yeah it's it's such a an important issue to to tackle because you really don't want people to be at a disadvantage because they can't see that they have uh, these bowel cancer symptoms and you would have thought that actually a fit test would be quite beneficial for people who are blind or have a or are partially sighted because of course they can't see if if there is like blood that is you know visible to other people if you're partially tested you can't see it anyway yeah, so in true. theory a fit test should help with that but it's no good at all if it's not yeah. useful for people who are blind that's right and, and this is why we need to test it because we've got the people involved on the team that are looking at it some of them are visually impaired some are, are completely blind so it's very important that we have lived experience informing this process and also there are people with dexterity issues so we've got to the point where we're ready to test it in the real world and um, over the next few months uh, working with NHS local hubs 
across the country, um, people are being identified, and it's a target of them, but it sounds a bit sinister, doesn't it? People be identified who are also at the age of ready for screening, but also that also are registered with a visual impairment. So they will be contacted uh, and asked if they want to participate in this trial. And then they will get the, the fit aids kit with the adapt adaptations. And then we'll, we'll test it in a live situation, really. We'll see how, how people find it and we'll get some really good feedback. So if we then need to change the kit at all or, or provide some differences in the communication strategy behind it or figure out something else, because people will have ideas, you know, people with lived experience of loss come up with some brilliant ideas for fixing things because they're living their daily lives like that. So, you know, they're, they're, they're very inventive. So when, once that trial has been carried out and we've got the feedback from it, that the, the plan then is to make sure that when someone reaches the age that they're ready to, to, for a screening kit to be sent to them, their local GP will um, automatically, because the system will work this way, will be, be triggered to the fact that they have a visual impairment and it will be sent the alternative kit instead. So that means that you know the, the overall mission with this is to get the, the numbers of uh, response rates from the, the, the asymptomatic and the symptomatic return of the kits because it'll be easier for people to do and we'll create more awareness around it. Um, because what my fear is that people get the letter, which um, there's been problems with NHS systems coordinating with each other. So one of the things, the other things that we're working on, which, which I'll talk about a little bit later on, is around the accessible information standards. What that means is that people with communication needs other than the standard, you know, 14 font size letter that most people get, will have their information on the NHS computers. And everywhere you go through the NHS or social care, that information will be picked up and your communications will be sent in the format that you have chosen. Um, that, that's not there at the moment. So, you know, when the letter goes out initially telling people about, about the fit test, it doesn't pick up that knowledge so everyone gets the same bog standard letter but so that's something we need to fix as well because there's no good getting the letter if you can't you can't see to tell you that if you want another format please ask for it because you know it's kind of a bit of a catch-22 yeah um, but that, that's what's happening uh, quite a lot across other areas of health as well but that's something that we're, we're as, a, as a sector we're looking at fixing as well I wonder if that's an issue with language as well. If somebody yeah. receives a letter in, in English and it, it says in English, if you need this letter in another language. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably not, not very useful. No, it's not. And again, you know, the communications across all different needs, needs looking at. And uh, be, the NHS have been, and they'll, they'll admit this themselves, they've been quite, uh, they find it quite difficult to keep up with the need, you know, things like um, automatic Braille. So if I say I need my letter in Braille, for example, or I need my letter in Urdu, you know, it, I need to get that letter before the appointment, not after it because it takes, you know, extra days because they've got to send out somewhere to get that printed. So we want, you know, either NHS organisation to have the capacity to produce those communication um, assets or whatever in this, the format people want at the same time as the standard box, standard English size 14 font letter or, or whatever. Uh, and, and getting around some of the digital exclusion issues as well, not assuming everyone's got a smartphone because they haven't. You know, yeah. so again, it's making sure that people's needs are recorded. So there is a responsibility on the individual or patient to tell the NHS or their GP what their needs are. And again, you know, that can be done over to when you go in for your uh, an appointment or to drop a prescription off or whatever. You can speak to the receptionist and, and update your needs. Um, and I think GPs are going to get better at asking people for updated information. And the other problem that, um, that can often ha happen is, is not is staff that aren't particularly trained well on understanding the variety of different communication needs people have, whether it's people with a learning disability who need something in easy read, 
or it's Braille or it's uh, you know a different um, language altogether uh, that people need their comms in. But as as AI gets involved and starts to be able to make things like that easier, making sure that these things are checked first for making sure they're correct. But um, it, we should be able to do things more simultaneously than having to wait extra because it isn't fair that someone has to wait a longer time to get a letter about an appointment because there may be things they have to do in preparation for that, like fast or uh, take blood pressure readings or whatever that is, that prep, because, you know, people, otherwise people are turning up to appointments having not done the preparation that the letter, which they didn't, you know, understand or couldn't read, um, told them to do. And so it becomes a do, do not attend event, as, they, as the NHS call it. So it's as if the person's just not bothered to turn up, which obviously isn't the case. And that currently is not monitored. So we want them to monitor those sorts of um, administrative misadventures a bit more carefully so we can understand what the problem is. So does it... That's interesting about that did not attend. Is is that like a, a black mark against the person? Does that kind of count against them for, for future appointments or care? Or Well, not, I suppose technically it shouldn't, depending on how often, how many times that happens. Different NHS bodies have different criteria. But it, it, you know, what, what it makes it look like is if the, the NHS is all tickety-boo and it's, it's the patient's fault, yeah. which masks the real problem. So, I mean, I know the government we're talking about uh, introducing charges for do not attend at GPs if people do do it three times and they get charged. That That's not currently in, as far as I know, but um, obviously the, there are human rights issues and things like that to consider with that. But but there is a an incentive for people to, you know, to, to, to attend their appointments because there's a perception and, you know, you speak to people and they think, oh, I haven't had it for an appointment, they won't give me another one. But not only that does that, you know, create that impression, but it also creates a delay in, in whatever the treatment is, which and that delay could could actually lead, lead to kind of different health outcomes, worse health outcomes, because particularly with eye health, which I'm involved in, some conditions, if tr- if not treated early, can be irreversible or not 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 treated at all. So, um, you know, we stress the the urgency of, of getting things looked at quickly. And if the system is not helping with that, then that's something that we can fix. Yeah. And again, just so so important to to carry out these these fit tests and to to follow up with with any symptoms. And I, I imagine it's it's quite difficult as well because somebody who's blind or partially sighted might be might have things that they ask people to help with, like uh, a close relative or or something. But doing a dipstick in 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 your poo might not be something that that people are comfortable asking for for help with. And I guess that can be another barrier as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people live on their own as well. They haven't even got the, yeah. the potential for that. But I think, you know, again, it's it's, you know, it's one of those taboo subjects. It's getting People are getting better at being able to talk about being embarrassed, which is having talked about this quite a lot. It seems silly now, but there are still people who feel, you know, that um, there's a bit of a taboo, especially maybe people who are not used to sharing things like that. You know, people who if it feels undignified, but I mean, really, it shouldn't because it's just another, you know, it's just like snot or something like that, really. If you think of it like that, you know. You wouldn't be worried about that so that's what it is you know so that that to me has been broken down but just to, i know that you know when i got my fit test i was like oh god i don't really want to do that but then i thought about it and i thought hang on you know this is something that i mean offered free that could save my life so why wouldn't i and then i thought about how difficult it is for those with limited dexterity uh, and sight loss i thought you know i thought shame on me for even thinking that this is difficult because it's not for me but it could seem impossible for someone who, who can't see so anything we're doing around this the fit aid test Anything we can do around, you know, helping family members to talk about this with their parents or partner, you know, because that conversation, it, it could be the, the hardest bit is to actually, you know, someone's like, I need help with this. 
because you know again I've done it with my mother as well actually so I've been talking personal experience in terms of that side of things the family member and it's 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 not pleasant but I think it, it actually creates a, a bond in a way because you you know not comfortable but if you get through that and it ends a good outcome it's like you know you've done something we both didn't find very easy but has actually led to a health potentially health Im- improvement yeah no definitely and you mentioned dexterity there as as well so the fit aid is does that help people who have dexterity issues yeah i mean dexterity issues come in all shapes and sizes it could be you know arthritis or it could be just you know uh, an injury um because you know if you only got one hand if your hand's damaged or you know there's all sorts of depuitrins and all sorts of conditions that can lead to limited dexterity um but the fit aid does help because it provides kind of it there's a i wish i could uh, show it to you on, on this podcast but i'll describe it so it's a rectangular piece of plastic with a sort of trough in the middle which is just the right size for the uh the test tube bit that comes with it so you can rest the test tube in the tray trough and click it closed there's also a little stand to put it on as well a bit like some of the stands you would have got with a covid test but it's built into the tray uh, and the tray has braille instructions on it well it, braille instructions to show you how to get the, the other instructions because we could fit full braille instructions on it but um and also has the uh, qr code with a, a very big, a large picture about how you click the thing, you must click the test tube closed. So I think once we've had the trial with people with lived experience, we'll have a lot better idea about how well it works in the field. But we think, you know, to get to this point, we've done a, quite a lot of research and user testing from our, you know, kind of pool of people within within our kind of realm now. But I think the real test is when it goes out through the uh, screening hubs across the country. And we get people to test it and get the you know, variety of people with different eye conditions, different ages, different circumstances to kind of give us their feedback on it, really. What feedback has there been so far? What have people been been saying? I think generally speaking, it, you know, it, there's, there's a song, there's a kind of a, um, uh, an impact from just discussing it, really, because I think, again, if you, if you discuss this with people and, you know, you then start to talk about the importance of it. And I think that's half a battle sometimes. It's like, once you get that out in the open and you, you go through the sort of stages of it, people are more, more willing to do it anyway. And if you provide them with um, a way that is easier than the standard kit, um, there's generally been good feedback from people. You know, we, we did a um, feedback from people in, in Northumberland recently. Well, we didn't do it. Uh, our site loss, local site loss charity called um, Vision Northumberland um, did it. And um, there were some really good ideas on things like, uh, you know, for people who can see, have dexterity issues to change the the color of the actual stick itself so showing that where you know you need to get the poo up to this line so a more contrasting color so that that could be so that was just one idea that someone you know with lived experience came out with that was actually quite a good idea so so the response has been quite good but i think you know to get the a true response or a more, more effective response we need you know several hundred people to test it across the country in different circumstances so we can kind of um, look at the look at the results we get from that and um, just make sure that this is as, as good as it can be really is there any other improvements we can make to the kit itself or how we or how it is communicated to, to patients you know this is going to happen and just making sure that we pick on any of their pick up any of their adjustment needs the added value of this as well gives people a chance to um to give information on other needs they might have that they haven't already done because it'll raise their awareness of the importance of making that that the NHS fully aware of every need that they have because you can't blame the NHS for not responding to people's needs if they don't know about those needs so it only picks up things at the moment that are currently logged on their system 
but there are maybe there are things which don't fall under a, a NHS code or have happened since you've last updated your requirements that have changed for you. Your site might have deteriorated, your, your mobility might have deteriorated, so you might not be able to, to get out of appointments um, as easily. So the NHS needs to know these things. So I would always advise people any, any opportunity that I have to make sure your healthcare providers, or be it GPs or hospital, if, you, if you're currently under a hospital treatment plan, then just tell the reception person or the, the administrator, administrator that you discuss with, make sure they know about all your adjustment needs. You know, and that's that's um, mental, physical, everything that you that would make your experience of healthcare more more pleasant or less unpleasant. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. So, outside of the fit test, then, is there any other aspect of bowel screening or that the the general kind of bowel health pathway? Are there are there any other issues that are are difficult for people who are blind or partially sighted? I'm thinking about like maybe procedures like colonoscopies and things or yeah. sort of general hospital stays and, and, and that sort of stuff. What, what other issues are there? I think um, the, the, the main issues are, again, going back to the accessibility information standards, which is the NHS's um, own standard to communicate with people in the way that they have specified. Getting that right is, is like a foundation and that, that, that will then help everything that flows from that. So in order to get people, you know, they need to get to the hospital on or, because oftentimes hospitals change their layout. So someone might be used to the visual impairments, get used to a route. Once they've learned to route, provided it doesn't change, there's no obstacles in the way, they can independently, you know, quite easily um, follow that route and get to where they need to go. The problem is when that route changes or something changes, the, maybe the clinic that they attend or, you know, if they're going to a particular place within the hospital, it's important to know that before you arrive. So, you know, Either that could be through audio recordings to describe people roughly where their clinic is in relation to the hospital entrance. Uh, there are all sorts of gizmos and apps now you can get that can help you get to where you need to be if you're tech savvy and you have a smartphone. So there are route finders and that, that kind of thing. Google Maps actually is quite good at getting you to the building. But once you're in the building, you know, the internal mapping's not that good yet. And so even if you have got a smartphone, you might not be able to get to your clinic. So um, having trained staff at the, the forefront of the hospital, administrators, porters, anybody who's likely to, even cleaners actually, because they come into contact with people quite a lot. And to, to get to train those, those staff in how to interact with the visually impaired person, how to talk to someone, because that's people feel a bit awkward when they don't know how to, to, to offer help. So there's basic things about, you know, using, uh, using your voice and don't use your gestures because people can't see necessarily. They might be able to see a bit, but don't assume they can. And, you know, trying to direct people with vocal instructions rather than visual ones. So, and the kind of general awareness about how to guide someone who's visually impaired. Because oftentimes, you know, someone might need to go into the bowels of the hospital, as it were, <laughs> to, um, to access the care they need. And, it, and, you know, even if you've got sight, it's really hard to find these places sometimes. It's go through Cardorex down green, the green wing, you know, 30 yards and then turn right, go up the stairs, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So sometimes people, especially people who may have got frailty issues as well, maybe they're not steady on their feet, will need to be guided. Um, so having someone in the hospital, you know, front, front of house team who knows how to guide, and is available when the person needs it because you know the ward will be alerted to that because the patient's record has that on it so they'll know there's a need there then that can be pre-planned and so the person can get to where they need to be because the the problem with 
with especially with people who've got heart conditions and, and, and high blood pressure trying to find your way around the hospital just increases your stress so it doesn't help if you're there for your you know for cardiovascular or whatever to be more stressed if you've got visual impairments as well um, and that that's the principle that we try and adopt at, at, uh, at Thomas Buckington is that people are they have sight conditions, but they're also very much not just about their sight. They've got other health conditions and other aspirations and needs. So it's how do we help those the people and the service providers, whether it's health, leisure, shopping, you know, all, all of those the places that people go where they want to be as independent as they can. We need to make sure that the staff and the, the layout of those places is appropriate as well. So there's not things in the way for people to trip on, like those awful yellow little triangle signs they put up when there was a wet floor kind of thing. I mean, I know why they do it, but because of visually impaired people, no end of problems, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm just thinking about the scooters that are all over the roads these days as, as well, or lying on pavements and things. We've got a campaign for that one as well, if you want oh, you? our website, but yeah, it um, makes streets accessible. Yeah, there, there is, I mean, there's an awful lot of things that, that people sometimes unwittingly put in the way of people, literally. That make it very hard for them to navigate um, around you know so we might do all the training all the everything else but if there's a scooter in the way and you trip over it and break your you know bones or whatever then that's yeah. not an outcome that we want so we, we work with those providers with our with our colleagues to make the world a bit safer and uh, more accessible really yeah. excellent yeah really important work and just thinking about hospitals as well thinking about like the hospital stay i guess is equally important for communicating mm. with people and i know when we talked last uh before recording we were we were talking about somebody staying in hospital and they might hear somebody nearby but not be able to to see them and they might think oh is that is that a doctor have they come to tell me something have they come to do something to me and it's maybe it's just the cleaner or something but but you don't know and then that's just must be massively increased anxiety because you can't tell what's happening it certainly does, and, and it can um, result in a, you know, a poorer health outcome because it could be as sort of simple as not being able to uh, read the menu for the lunch, and, and maybe if they've got a dietary need, they'd rather not eat anything than eat the wrong thing because it could have serious side effects. And that's where the information standard again comes in, because if the ward manager or the person responsible for that patient's care is made aware that that person's got particular needs for their, you know, to, they've got no sight, they've got some sight, they need information in a particular font size or whatever, then they can then set that care, care plan up for that person on the ward so that all the staff will have some kind of awareness as well. So from the cleaner, the person looking after the lunches, the healthcare assistants, the nurses, the doctors, the myriad of people that are porters that come in contact with a patient in a hospital. Uh, one interesting, uh, very simple solution that uh, in Liverpool, uh, that the eye clinic liaison officer came up with uh, who's uh, someone who helps people connect with services uh, in the community if they've got an, an eye problem but she came up with this idea that when someone was flagged as having a visual impairment was admitted to one of the wards the other wards in the hospital she would be alerted and she would go up and just have a quick chat with the, with the care manager and make sure that um, that the charts of that person when they were you know, things that you write on which are becoming increasingly rare because um you know, notepads and things like that, um, iPads and things like that are being used more. But the the any kind of any kind of person that would come into contact with that person who has a visual impairment would be alerted to that fact, either physically with a sticker or some other way, so that you know everybody from the cleaner onwards would would set, would know to, to kind of talk to that person, and say hello, I'm I'm the cleaner, and my name's such and such, and I'm just doing this. 
So that, you know, especially if you're in an isolated ward on your own, that like you say, when someone just opens the door and comes in and goes, hello, you know, is it, a, is it a, you know, is it a cleaner? Is it a, you know, ophthalmologist? Is it a, you don't know who it is. So announcing yourself, your very simple principles like that, you know, are, are the key to really opening that communication and not and putting that patient less, you know, more at ease, I suppose you could say. And, and just understanding you know, the visual clues don't work. So think about how you would adopt, adapt rather your practice to take account of that fact. All of these accessibility issues are kind of everybody's, they should be everybody's problem really, shouldn't they? Because I mean, no matter who you are, you, you don't know when you might come into contact with somebody who has different needs to you. And, you know, people might think, well, I, I'm not, I'm not blind. I'm not in a wheelchair. I'm, I'm not autistic or whatever it might be, you know, accessibility needs don't apply to me, but actually particularly thinking about health and as people get older, like you don't really know what's, what's going to happen to you in, in the future. You know, it could very well be your personal problems. I, you know, I think mm. it's something like for ourselves and for other people that we, sh we should all be, we should be aware of. Yeah, and I think whether it's, you know, your, your mother, your father, your auntie, your uncle, your grandma, you know, someone in your family, you know, or yourself, sooner or later, you know, will probably develop some kind of eye problem. If you live long enough, you certainly will, because, you know, there are conditions like cataracts and glaucoma, macular degeneration, which, which largely affect older people. In fact, 80% um, of people that we, uh, you know, we kind of categorise as having sight loss are over 65. So, you know, it's, it's going to happen if you live long enough. But so it's, it's good to be prepared for that. And also for your family, because I know, you know, at the moment, my, my mother is visually impaired and her sight's recently deteriorated. And I've been the one in the family that's kind of, you know, figured out what we're going to do about that because she, she lives in a different city to the rest of us. So how do we arrange that care? You know, and even until it's too late, until it happens, um, put you on the back foot a little bit and, you know, you've got to then rush to get services in place. So just to have an eye for, you know, as it were, to, to be aware of, how you would deal with that if a family member did start to lose their sight. And we do a lot of resources on our, on our website. Um, one is called What Do We See? Which uh, using augmented reality, that posh thing where it's basically a camera on someone's head, but it, it sort of shows someone traveling around their daily environment, you know, the, on a bus, in a shop, in the office. And it does, it shows about six conditions, common conditions, what, what, that, what that is like to see when you've got that condition through you know clever wizardry but it and it shows over time how that could deteriorate as well so if you've got macular degeneration which is a common condition for older people it's even called age-related macular degeneration then you know it can start off not too bad and you can see you know you just literally lose some of your vision but if it gets worse and progresses then it can get quite you know quite a lot worse so it's good to see how it might progress for someone it's only an approximation so not everyone's going to have the same experience but it does show family members and friends children and then maybe if their parents are visually impaired, what it's like for them with that limited vision, how they actually see, so they can then be more attuned to, you know, how, how to manage that, um, manage the household or whatever, to take account of the fact that people have either got maybe no central vision um, or no peripheral vision, so that they can't see side to side, so that you need to not put things in the way because they won't necessarily see it and could trip and fall. Um, so those videos are really good. We do one for ch uh, common children's conditions as well which has been really popular with parents um, and um, teachers and others, other workers in schools. So they can sort of have some kind of indication of what that child is actually having problems with in terms of seeing. 
um, and then what adjustments that they can make to help that child and maybe the classmates as well because they can take part you know they're more tuned be more em empathetic with the person um, because they'll have some idea of that you know because everyone's a bit shocked when first when they put these we've got these sim specs which are glasses that you put on which show simulate various conditions and you try and walk around and it's quite a shock actually when you've never done that before and it, and it really does bring home to you how limiting uh, having reduced vision is and how completely different your life is from that but it's a it's, it's a really kind of humbling experience actually have you or has anybody had a look at a fit test with that sort of using that kind of yeah we, we've, we've tried that out and it's impossible right. <laughs> and then, you know people with vision impairments are generally very very resilient um and and very used to having to find ways around because as human beings you know very we're very adaptable um you know there, there is a serious emotional impact of sight loss which i, I can't understate and people do need to be um, offered support with that because, you know, the impact of losing your sight is, is profound. It affects every aspect of your life. Driving is one biggie. But just being able to kind of, you know, do your hobbies like knitting or line dancing even, which my mom does, you know, those things can be life changing to people. And, and the clinicians who work in eye health might not be aware of those, how, how important some of those things are to your life. So, you know, you don't necessarily need to know all the ins and outs of your medical condition you know you might want to do that and that's, that's great but it's, it's what impact it has on your life that really matters not the thing itself so you know as long as i can still do this this and this and i can have these tools to help me get around and you know i've got this support with that and learning how to use a, a, a white cane for example you know th those sorts of things are essential for people to, uh, to adapt to a life with reduced vision but a lot of people aren't able to or don't access those services so they become isolated and, and they're liable to become very depressed which is understandable and then you know it's harder to recover from a position like that so we're we're really keen to to, to reach out to people where we can and, and um, you know refer them to local support where it exists and make sure they take advantage of that yeah i think that's yeah sounds like really important work that, you, that you're doing and the whole topic of accessibility and everybody's individual needs is just so huge i think we could talk about it all day but but yeah just to swing back to to, to, to fit test I mean one thing that's stood out for me while while we started talking was like yeah it's not the most pleasant thing to to do but as you kind of alluded to that there's far more worse things to do I mean I've had bowel cancer I've had my bowel removed you know even going for a colonoscopy having your bowel removed having a stoma having the the stoma then then reversed potentially some things that could be avoided if cancer is is caught early so so yeah extremely important topic and, and yeah there's just a lot worse and more unpleasant things that you, you can do than than a fit test and if we can help you know even one one person who wasn't going to do the fit test because they couldn't do it or didn't want to do it to do it and you know one one early uh, detection of, of, of uh, cancer cells is picked up then that's that's enough really because that's one person who's had to been hopefully been spared you know what could be a whole lot of worse outcomes so i think that that's a motivation to to keep banging this drum certainly brilliant so just one final question for for you to, to kind of end on then so what one takeaway would you like people to know about bowel screening and visual impairment kind of leave people with yeah i guess it's like don't feel overwhelmed when you get asked to do it and if and reach out and ask for help there are, there are speak to gp obviously is one way um but there there are lots of and as this kit gets gets more publicity when it's properly launched then there will be a, a better way for you to get help some people will still struggle with it um and then you know and i guess 
the, the screening process is, look, is continually looking for ways to do this, this better or more easily for people because prevention is always better than cure. And for the NHS, it's a lot cheaper as well, I have to say. So that's a motivation. Don't, be, don't feel overwhelmed by it. Don't, don't think it, you can't participate. You have a right under the Human Rights Act and the Equality Act to have the same care and health care as everybody else. And so if you are struggling because of something that then you can't do it, then that's not fair. So, you know, advocate for yourself, really encourage people to do that. You should, you have the right to have a test. And if you find it more difficult because of circumstances beyond your control, that's not your fault. So you, you, you should be helped. Great. Eamon, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. It's been really interesting discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. It's been good. Yeah, thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Can I Button? This podcast was brought to you by Bowel Research UK. Find out more about the charity, our work and how you can get involved. Visit bowelresearchuk.org where you can join our People and Research Together network or part. Read about our research campaigns and fundraising or make a donation to support the vital work we do. Let's end bowel cancer and bowel disease.